pressing record is often one of the bravest things I do with my day. Because it's like starting a paper. The introductory paragraph to a paper is the hardest thing to do. Even if you know that your thoughts are sound, getting them out there in a coherent way, and then trying to entice somebody to listen, naturally self-centered, and actually often reminds me of talking to my friends. I spend so much time thinking about how, or even assuming, how am I being received or perceived that I'm talking, that I don't even know how to begin talking to someone. I really want to talk to someone. But I was listening to another podcast while I was working out about half an hour ago. And that guy started with just a jovial, hello. So maybe we'll start with that. Hello. (laughs) I really want to talk about Noah. Because Noah is what somebody talked about me recently. Talked about me. Noah is what somebody talked about with me recently. And a lot of what I think, had to say, is in response, or at least just catalyzed by stuff that somebody else says. It's like putting food in front of me. And instead of quite eating it, I'd look at it and I was like, ooh, what can we do with this? What if we turn it this way? What if we throw it back on the fryer? Perhaps if you hang it upside down and steam it with a little bit of salt. I don't know. Whatever. So I want to talk about Noah. Because I heard somebody else talk about Noah. And it got me thinking about Noah. No way! Alright, bad pun out of the way. And I was racking my brain thinking about how am I going to start this. And after the talk about Noah... Another friend put together some small group discussion questions. And these are fantastic. So, I'm actually just going to walk through these with you. Okay, here we go. So, Noah is actually in Genesis chapter 6. And the first question is, describe what humanity is like. So I actually asked this to a small group that I was leading, of sorts. Teenage young men, very different. Hmm. Anyway, I did get some answers. Yay! And there were some standard answers. And by standard, I just mean that they're usually given. That doesn't mean that they're wrong at all. Actually, they're quite right. Only one of the things that I usually find is kind of, you know, Inigo Montoya. I don't think that word means what you think it means. If you've even actually thought about what it means. Hmm. So, describe what humanity is really like. And I got wicked. Sinful. Yes. True. Ask them to define wicked. Uh, evil? Like, Alright, yeah, well, what's evil? And the Hebrew word for evil is often translated as, you know, calamity, as this idea. So, going back to the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of knowledge, the source of knowledge about that which will bring about flourishing, good, and that which will bring about calamity, evil. Frater yourself or other people in that direction. So, describe what humanity is like. Well, I'm actually blanking in the moment on some of the responses that I got. But they were something along the lines of greedy, selfish, violent. I was like, okay, those are all true. Those are also all negative. Any positives? Do people love other people? Yeah. Okay. And with teenage guys, it's always the low-hanging fruit. People, pastors, youth pastors, mentors, whatever, always want to talk about the evils of sex and pornography. And I've actually heard them tell me, like, we get it, just, why do they always got to go there? Well, let's go there. Have you ever stopped to consider some of the people 
who, let's say, participate in such productions. Now, I've also heard testimony from a man who used to participate in such productions and, by the grace of God, has been brought out of them and is even... Can you hear my cat whining in the background? She's emotional. This man has been brought out of that and is actually now pastoring a church somewhere in the northwest United States, possibly north central Montana, Dakotas. I don't remember where. Anyway, so based on his testimony, I know that there are a lot of other things even underneath this surface that are horrendous. And I found myself thinking, how could even the people I'm thinking about be okay with being in an industry like this? But for the sake of a starting point argument, what are some of the people who participate in this industry like? Well, they have ugly Christmas sweater contests. They go to their brother's college graduations. They have holidays with family. They help out their friends when their friends have gone on a bender and broken their sobriety. And in many respects, a lot of them, if we didn't know what they did for a living, we would say are decent people. And it's interesting, I didn't say good people, I said decent people. Because they are still just people. And we think about what wickedness is, and we think about what brings about evil or calamity. If we think about what people really are, are they, as Genesis 6, 5 and 6 says, that they are, that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually? No. Okay. Well, let's jump to Romans 1. Romans 1 is Paul talking about, I would wager, mankind in general. And he's actually talking about human nature. Now, nobody that I know, Arminian or Calvinist, would disagree with this, although there's an entirely another episode that I could do where I'm not entirely sure that I agree with them, where I'm more of a concurring opinion, as it were. But going to Romans 1, starting in 28, verse 28, because that's where at least our current English Bible has a paragraph break. And since they did not see fit, they being mankind, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Okay, there's one of our catchphrases. Neo Montoya, do you know what that word means? What you think it means? Okay, so unrighteousness, adikia, the injustice, as in of a judge, unrighteousness of heart and life. Okay, fair. A deed violating law and justice. Hmm. Now it's still a translation, but the Latin Bible. Iniquitate. Where we get our English iniquity. Which according to the Lewis and Short Latin Dictionary can have an idea of unfairness, injustice, unreasonableness. So in other words, how our mind works. Filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil... So, calamitousness, that which brings it about. Ooh, covetousness, malice. Even the most decent of people are like this. The most righteous of people have a righteous malice against people who ought to be hated. And we love doing it. We do covet. We do envy. Even if we try not to, even if it's not particularly all that strong, 
it still occurs, which means our mind is still capable of it. I'm not saying this to condemn anybody or judge, but just be sober-minded. If it crops up, then we are capable. And even if we indulge it just a little bit, that means that we are capable. People are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. Ooh, actually, let's do this right now. Merriam-Webster. All right, Merriam-Webster, dictionary, insolent, but not dictionary. Insolent, exhibiting boldness, insultingly contemptuous. Hmm, many of us are like that, even the best among us. We are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, haughty, boastful, inventors of calamity, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless. Faithless means untrustworthy. Heartless, unfeeling, ruthless. Yes, all of us are like this, and not in a caricatured kind of a way. But if we actually step back and examine ourselves... People nowadays, decent people, we are like this. Or at least we would be if given the opportunity. We know we would. Even the little things. So the question, describe what humanity is like. There's a description of Genesis 6, 5 and 6, or verses 11 and 12. Let's go back to that. Genesis 6, 6, 11 through 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Hmm. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh, meaning living things, had corrupted their way. He's talking about people on the earth. Hmm. Are people like this? Well, if you actually just step back from the biblical language, which is pretty black and white and actually rather dry and succinct. Yes, people are like this. Even when we form coalitions, a lot of times those coalitions have common enemies. And those coalitions gain their strength from fighting a common enemy, usually viciously. And when that common enemy is not there, interestingly enough, they have a tendency to turn on each other. You just need an enemy to fight if you're going to bring yourself together and hold the high ground, especially if it's moral and righteous. So yes, humanity's like that. So next question, how does the flood illustrate God's justice and his mercy? Mercy? Mercy. Okay, nice biblical sounding question with an easy biblical answer, but... Let's nuance this a bit. So, going back to Genesis 6, God said in verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, all living things. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay. Here is where I would suggest the nature of God's justice is coming into play. Justice is legal, but I like looking at this term, this English term, in light of its etymology. Oh, I forgot how big this is. So, justice, justitia in the Latin, comes from 
a Latin word, use, where we get jury and just, which can be understood as that which is binding or obligatory. Hence the concept of justness. And what is binding and obligatory? Well, God's ordained cosmos, his logos, his will. The set of directives by which the universe operates. The set of directives established by the counsel of his own will, by which the semi-autonomous human will is supposed to operate. And that is where Eve, or the woman, rather, she wasn't named Eve yet, fell short in the garden. And that is where we fall short. And that is what produces the exertion of our own will outside of the governance of God, not fully taking into account or being cognizant of Him or His character, is what brings about all the list of things in Romans 1. And so God is bringing creation, his creation, back into alignment with his binding justness, by which his creation is bound to operate, obliged to operate. So in chapter 6 of Genesis, we actually see the first of three times that God Recreates. The first two are, in a certain sense, literal and therefore illustrative of the full sense in which he recreates creation, particularly humanity, through the cross and redemption through Christ. So, if you think about this, God, well, let's go back to this. Um, all of creation has been corrupted. Why would God like destroy all the other creatures as well? And so jumping ahead a little bit, you will take two of every living thing, two of every living thing of flesh, you shall bring them into the, into the ark, male and female, according to their kind, all that. Why is God destroying the animals? Well, this goes back to the Genesis mandate. One of the purposes of man is to govern creation. It says has dominion over it. Well, fun fact, dominion comes from the same root. Yes, where we get dominate, dominance. Take it back to the Latin dominus, which means master. But hold on, a dominus is master in his domus, which is his home. He's master of a household. That's not exactly the same thing as reducing it to a master with slaves with absolute authority and who's a whipcracker. A dominus is far more pregnant of a term than that. And a good dominus does not simply lord it over. He has authority and position, but he's also a good manager. He doesn't micromanage. He also lets certain things run according to their nature as they well ought, and he more guides and directs oversees, and protects. Interestingly enough, this is, from my understanding, the role of the Roman Jupiter, as opposed to the Greek Zeus. The fates have determined how things ought to be, and Jupiter, as Dominus, 
His job is to guide and direct the world so that it remain in line with that. And C.R. Wiley and his friends at the Theology Podcast have a great discussion about C, um, Tolkien's Tom Bombadil. And C.R. Wiley even recently published a book on Bombadil. And one of the things they say is Bombadil is the master like this. If you want to see like an archetype that explores what human beings are supposed to be within the realm of God's creation, it's Tom Bombadil in the forest. But we have failed at that. And we have therefore marred and scarred the very thing which we were meant to govern, guide, and protect. You can think about it this way. Paul says a little leaven leavens the entire lump. Uh, loaf, meaning a little bit of corruption dirties the whole thing. A little bit of stain on a white shirt, and the entire white shirt is dirty. We hate it. We won't wear it. And so, the wickedness of humanity has corrupted the world which we govern. Well, and yeah, think about this. The various things in which we alter the earth, digging stuff up, Chopping stuff down, building things here, blocking rivers there, disrupting migrations here. It's not just the wickedness we do to each other. But it is the way that over time, millennia, humanity has mismanaged the natural world. And so the entire natural world needs a control-all-delete reset. Hence why God is going to destroy all the animals as well. And so this brings us to why Noah? Why save Noah? Well, yes, it's to recreate humanity, but let's look at this. And God said to Noah, I determined, uh, nope, earlier than that. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Hmm. It's one of the first things we learn about Noah. Go back a little bit earlier in Genesis. You know, Adam and Eve have two kids, Cain and Abel, one kills the other, that sucks. They go on outside the garden to have more kids. First one, Seth. Seth lived for a while, father to son, lived for longer, died. That son, Enosh, lived for a while, father to son, lived longer, died. The son, Kenan, lived a while, father to son, lived longer, died. Uh, Kenan's son, Mahalalel, Mahalalel, lived for a while, father Jared, lived longer, died. Jared, lived for a while, father Enoch, lived longer, died. Enoch, lived for a while, Enoch walked with God. Keep in mind this is outside the garden. Archetypally speaking, this is when man is really living outside of the governance of God's logos, shall we say. Relying on himself and his own understanding as Eve did in the garden. Which means that by doing what is right in our own eyes and leaning on our own understanding, we do not walk with God. We do not walk in accordance and in submission cognizant of his governing authority. But Enoch did. And as a result, he lived fully and eternally in the presence of God. Hence why Enoch was no more. He was taken up. Noah walked with God. 
And so that makes Noah the best one to be a sort of first, second Adam. The root, if I can use that term, from which the recreated humanity will spring, which will govern a purified, recreated earth, populated by animals who were born from the two of every kind, male and female, that go into the ark. Ark being strong box, stronghold, protective safe, fire safe, as it were, for good keeping. Until the earth has been cleansed, and that which is said to be good repopulates, and we start over. But we know what human beings are like, and God knows that. It's not like God's sitting up there, and when Noah finally sins, shortly after leaving the ark, God's like, damn it. No. All of this was written for our benefit, that we may learn ourselves, and we may learn God. How does the story of the flood prequel Christ? Or, flipped, how does the story of Noah demonstrate the gospel? Well, it's the idea of the ark. It says that Noah walked with God, but that doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. And the blood of Christ is our ark. There is one more recreation coming, at least according to Christian scripture. The return of Christ, the judgment of all things, and in perpetual life in the new Jerusalem, where God will live among us, we will be his people, he will be our God, all that. So there's another one coming. And the blood of Christ is our ark, our strong box, which protects us from the calamity outside. Much like the blood of the lamb in Egypt acted as an ark of sorts for the Jews inside the house, protecting them as the calamity of death passed over outside. And those of us who walk with God are covered by that blood. Hold on. Shut up. Listen. There's only so much language I have to work with. Don't hear what you want to hear so you can attack me. Yes, I did say those who walk with God are covered by the blood of Christ. I'm not saying works-based salvation. This was not an if-this-therefore-that statement. Or an equation. To walk with God... To live in accordance with his logos, his will. To follow the example of the author and perfecter of our faith. Is only doable, firstly, because God has offered the ark in the first place by his grace. God could have acknowledged that Noah walked with him and whatnot, but then, you SOL, buddy. Flood. Go. Hoping to swim. Maybe. I don't know. Fun to watch you try. But God didn't. God, he said, build the ark, but God provides the wood, because all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God provides the wood. God helps with the stamina. God holds off the flood. God even offered the opportunity. And Noah... In faith, 
built an ark because he was already a man of faith. He was already a man who walked with God, who recognized God's sovereignty. And so when we walk with God, that is basically the concept of repentance. And when we do fall short, as we know we will, we do have an advocate who pleads our case continually before the Father. And it's not that it's fine, but it's fine. It's okay. So no, I'm not saying be perfect and God will let you live. But by grace, we have been saved. God provides through his favor, which only he can willfully bestow and is not obliged to bestow by anything we may deserve, even if you can try and make the case for it. By grace, we have been saved through faith, trusting in what God provides, trusting that the ark will hold, trusting that his logos, his will, his understanding of how the world and we are supposed to work within it is good, and we submit to that, and we align our sending me autonomous will and actions to that, we live attached to the vine, abiding in him, we are in under the ark of his blood. And we will live. And when the earth has been purged, and when creation has had its final control-alt-delete reset, we will come into the glory of the eternal city, into the genuine presence of God, and we will live righteously, not of our own works, but because of full submission to His will, Thanks to God's spirit, and there's a whole other thing on the word spirit that I need to do elsewhere, but thanks to the working of God's spirit, which guides and instructs our own spirits perpetually. So I guess it's also how Noah's story demonstrates faith. Because faith, through French, screw French. Faith, through French, from Latin, is a word for trust. Noah walked with God, meaning Noah trusted God. Did not lean on his own understanding of things, of circumstances, of people, of how he should behave, and envy, and malice, and slander, and all that good stuff. Noah had faith within God. And so, therefore, when God said, do this, for I will do this, Noah was like, I'm hypothesizing here, but thinking as he's a normal human being. Oh. Okay. Okay. And he took the shame of it. He took the mockery from it. Doesn't necessarily mean he took it, like, happily. But he took it. Anyway, that's where I should probably stop with that because there are too many tangents that I don't necessarily agree with or where we could take that. Too many things that are true but are too much of an abstract kind of a way that are just too easy to say. And when we try and do it, it's like, it didn't work. I know. Anyway, so that's Noah. That's faith. That's the flood. Hope that was helpful.